This morning we're continuing a series on following spiritual priorities. And last week and this week and for a couple more weeks, we're looking at a spiritual priority of really connecting with God's Word. And so as we bring this first slide up, it should tell you to look in Philippians chapter 3. I'm sorry, that's tonight. All right, my brain's on the right message, just the wrong text. So how can I understand what I read in the Bible? Some parts of the Bible are really hard to understand. In fact, the Apostle Peter said part of what Paul wrote was hard for people to understand. But he didn't say it was impossible. He said only the foolish and the unlearned rest with it. Only those who don't trust God, only those who don't pursue it cannot understand it. So how can I understand what I read in the Bible? The only way to truly understand God's Word is to develop an accurate method of interpretation. So if someone asked you, what is your hermeneutic? Uh, would you give a stare like this kid is? Would you wonder whether it's a disease or a musical instrument? Uh, what's a hermeneutic? Isn't that that little thing you just... Uh, huh? Oh, that's a harmonica, by the way. It's not a disease. It's, not a, it's simply this. How you interpret and understand the Scriptures. Now... The thing is, everybody has a hermeneutic. Everybody has a way they read and understand the Bible. But somebody, some people do not have a good one. And so our, one of the things we do as a church is we want to teach people how to interpret the Bible accurately. And people will talk about the Bible, and you know, maybe you've had conversations with people, and, and, and you, they, they've said something like, well, it all depends on how you interpret it. They make it sound like you get to choose whatever interpretation you want. And that's not actually what the Bible teaches. In fact, some people have such a poor understanding of God's Word, they think whoever interprets it is the one who's inspired, not the God who inspired the text. God inspired it and he communicated it so we could learn it and study it and understand it and adapt our lives accordingly. So we want to help you understand it. So let's go back to that first question. How can I understand and read the Bible? How can you do it? Well, uh, let's start today in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And then we're going to look at a couple other passages of Scripture, and I'm going to introduce you into our church's biblical method uh, for understanding the Scripture, our hermeneutic. Uh, and uh, if you follow these principles, uh, it can get you out of a lot of trouble understanding the Scripture, or misunderstanding, I should say. All right, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. What's the first word? Well, study if you're in the King James. Be diligent if you're in the New King James. I know that's two words, but that's what. Be diligent, study. All right, study 
to show yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So be diligent, study. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not, hey, let me give you Terry's tips for truth, okay? This is God saying, study, be diligent. This is not something that happens accidentally. You can't put your Bible on uh, audio and then have it play while you're sleeping so your brain osmosises some of it and soaks it in. That doesn't work. That's not what God has called you to do. God says, you study Be diligent. So some of you are kids in here, right? Well, the good news is you can wait till you get old, right? No. God wants you to do it now. In fact, I've preached funerals for kids younger than any kids in this room. Uh, We don't know how long we're going to have. So you need to study. Also, kids, it doesn't say it's your parents' job to make you do this. It says you study. And some of you are retired. I'm glad if you're retired and enjoying your life. I'm glad that you're retired and enjoying your life. I'm still working and enjoying my life. But when you retire, you don't retire from this verse. It doesn't say study and be diligent until you hit 65 or 70 or so, and then you can just stop. Now, some years ago, I was visiting with another man from our church, and we visited a guy here in town, and here's what he said. He said, I went to church for 40 years. I taught Sunday school. I was faithful. I've put in my time. Now on Sunday morning, I'm out on the golf course. Do you think that's what God intends? We never retire from growth. Now, I got to tell you, the older you get, the harder it is to memorize God's Word. The older you get, the harder it is to remember where it's in there, you know. The older you are, the more you love those uh, uh, concordances. You can look things up and find where it is and search. And uh, But I got to tell you this, you never stop growing. Study. Be diligent. This is a command from Scripture. And here's what God wants you to do. To develop a keen interest, an intense desire, and a passionate expectancy when you're looking at His Word. Not just, oh, here's my tidbit for today. How many of you have a devotional that you read? I read a devotional. Mine's now online. It gets sent to me every morning. But but you think we have daily breads that we make available. And before everything was online, we used to get a whole bunch of them. Now we get a little of them, but make those available. Some people use different ones. And, and normally in a little devotional, it'll have a scripture reading. Sometimes it's like a chapter and a half. Most of the time, it's two or three, maybe four verses uh, that you have for your devotion. And then you read about it a little bit and you pray. That's not a bad thing to do. But that doesn't meet the criteria here. 
See, you need to study and be diligent. That's why we have so many adults who show up in Sunday school and the 930 Bible class to learn God's Word. Do you think they've not heard it before? How many of you, well, never mind. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But I know several people who are regular in our Sunday school who have read through the Bible multiple times. They're not going to sit in the adult Bible class while Tim's teaching and go, I didn't know that was in the Bible. But they might learn a new way to apply it, a new way to think about it. And and honestly, they may even be like, whoa, I forgot that was in there. Okay, that's good. But keep learning. Study. Be diligent. It's an imperative command. God wants you to develop a keen interest in his word. Do you know what I mean by keen interest? A great desire? Okay, kids, I'll put it this way for you guys. Yesterday, when you guys put your cars up on the track here, and then you walked down, I watched. When the adults were racing, here's what happened. The adults walked down to their chairs, they sat in the chair, and they waited for the race to start. When the kids got back in their chair and waited, it was more like this. They were just just waiting for their car to come down. And some of them, when their car won, they're like, ah. Of course, you know, John was that way when his car won too. But, <laughs> but listen, that's that expectancy. You, you open your Bible that this is God's Word. And the Holy Spirit's going to help me understand it. And there's going to be truth for my life here. And it's not a dead book. It's quick and powerful. It's alive. So be diligent. The second thing is to present yourself. To show yourself. This is the act of formally presenting yourself to someone, excuse me, to someone who is a superior. Now, Ben is in J-R-O-T-C, right, Ben? Okay. <laughs> All right. All right, Ben, come on up here. Okay. All right. Attention. Parade rest. Attention. About face. Okay, good job. Wasn't that great? Hey, thanks. I, I can't do that about face anymore. If I spin like that, I just keep going, you know? But, but listen, when, when you're in the military, you understand what it means to present yourself before someone. You stand at attention. In the Marine Corps, you know, you, you, you know why you have thumbs? So you can line them up with the seam of your trousers. And, and so you can get, that's a tip. You line it up and everything's got to be all lined up. In fact, in the Marine Corps, I don't know if this is the way it is in all the other services, but in the Marine Corps, you had to turn your pants inside out, cut off all the loose threads on the inside, and then turn them back right side out so that if they were inspecting and looked in the middle, they could not find a loose thread. If you've seen the camis, that are, it's really hard to not have loose threads in those things. You've got to trim them every time there's an inspection. But you're presenting yourself to someone who outranks you. 
Now, in the military, if you want to get ahead, want to get promoted, if you can't stand at attention, if you can't do a snappy parade rest and about face, you can't even get promoted. You might be a genius, but you're not going to get promoted in the military until you can present yourself before someone who's a superior and pass their inspection. That's the idea here. Present yourself to God. This is not going to Sunday school with lots of Bible knowledge so you can give fun facts to know and tell. This is not so you can pass Miss Bird's quiz in preschool. This is not so you can answer all the questions Miss Green asked the high schoolers. It's so you can be approved by God. So it's to present yourself approved, examined, and proved to be genuine. How many of you have ever heard of counterfeit money? How many have ever held one? I've never actually held one, but I've seen one. But even to me, it looked bad. But they have counterfeit coins. They have counterfeit money. They have counterfeit medicine. Some people go down to Mexico to buy medicine, and my doctor told me, well, that's okay as long as it's individually packaged stuff that's weighed and measured. But sometimes the stuff you get from other countries, they're just mass-producing cheap. And so it might be 80%, it might be 40%, it might be um, you know, 100%, you don't know for sure. So you just got to be careful. There's some very legitimate pharmacies that sell way cheaper through Mexico. I've gone there and bought stuff myself. But you got to be careful what you're getting because not all of it passes the same inspection that's required for health here in the States. So be approved by God. Not impress your pastor, not impress your Sunday school teacher, your Awana leader. Impress God. Unto God. You can, you can fairly easily slip things past people in your life. My older brother and I were together a week ago Saturday. Well, Friday night, a week and a half ago, not quite. But we were together and we were talking, telling a few couple stories. And, and uh, one of the things my older sister brought up she never remembers the fun things that we did, but she brings up the other stuff. But how Jim and I would come in and we would tell mom this outlandish story of horrible things we did so that when we actually told her the truth, she was relieved. <laughs> Don't try that, kids. It's called guile and sin, okay? But you know, God doesn't fall for that. My sweet, kind, gracious mother could fall for that. God doesn't. Dad didn't either, by the way, just for the record. You're approved unto God. And who is God? God is the most magnificent being ever. 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit spoke creation into existence, set the earth in its orbit, rotating and revolving. He's got everything under control. Everything works like clockwork. And God made some rules for people. And he spelled out these rules. And he's very demanding and very exacting. For instance, the tithe. When Israel had people shortchanging the tithe, the book of Malachi, God blasts them for shortchanging the tithe because they were not honoring God and obeying His Word. There's passages of Scripture where they attack those who are in infidelity, those who are lying, those who are deceiving. God notices every sin and every sinful thought. He notices the sins You thought about but didn't do. He notices. But the good news is, he loves you intensely. So he's demanding and he's exacting, but he also loves you intensely. And in reality, his approval is the only thing that matters. I've said this before, that if seven and a half billion people on planet Earth were all mad at you on the same day, If God looked down from heaven and smiled at you, it's a good day. doesn't feel like a good day, but it is a good day. See, there was a pastor I heard years ago, and when he said it, I thought it was really kind of weird. But he said, we live for an audience of one. And I've gradually come to understand, we live for an audience of one, for God's approval, not man's. God's. So, to present yourself, be diligent to present yourself approved unto God. His approval is for your best good. His approval takes work, but He will make it worth it. And then this next part, a worker. Mr. Ricosi, every Marine is a basic what? Every Marine is a basic Rifleman, if you couldn't hear him. What does that mean? That means every Marine has to qualify and requalify and keep qualified on the rifle. My dad was in the Air Force. I think he qualified once. And, and he was in for 20 years. He qualified with a rifle once, and that was it. When I was in the Marine Corps, I had to qualify with a rifle, with an automatic rifle, with a pistol. The rifle, a dozen times in the three years that I was in. And with a pistol, I had to qualify four times, no, six times in the uh, three years that I was in. I had to qualify with a pistol. Why? Because every Marine, they got people in other services that do doctors and nurses. They got chaplains in all the other branches but not in the Marine Corps. Every Marine is combat trained and a basic rifleman. Every believer, every believer is supposed to develop a basic competency in God's Word. It's a requirement. So, a worker. God does not give anyone a spectator pass. I saw a little comic of kids in Sunday school, and this little boy's coming out of Sunday school, and he's saying to his friend, he said, yeah, I'm just auditing, so I don't have to do any of the homework. 
Now, everybody has and supposed to be a worker, not a spectator. Who does not need to be ashamed? All right, this is an easy confession. How many of you have ever done something that you were embarrassed that you did it? Yeah, okay. All right, now is the hard confession. I'm going to pick three people to say your most embarrassing thing. <laughs> Some of you were already starting to look nervous. I saw you grabbing your Bible. You're heading for the door. See, the truth is, we embarrass ourselves sometimes. And it's more embarrassing when you get caught. And God misses nothing. So we, we don't want to be ashamed. We don't want to stand before God and God said, I gave you my word. And you're like, yeah, but I was so busy. We, we don't want to be ashamed when we stand before God. So how, he says, who, who, who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing. This means to cut it straight, to divide correctly, to analyze and interpret accurately the word of truth. God has a vested interest in your ability to understand and interpret his word. And so do you. So do you. So at Victory, we have a hermeneutic. Here's how we describe it. We study the scripture through a normative slash literal. Why do we say normative slash literal? I'll explain that in just a minute. Grammatical, historical, contextual, and dispensational method of interpretation or hermeneutic so that we can accurately understand what the passage says and what it truly means. And we say normative slash literal because there's a normal literal interpretation and, and there's other people, they, they're literal and they take, when God speaks figuratively, they take it literally. For instance, when Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be saved. Did Jesus really want people being carnivorous? No. How do we know that? Because of other passages of Scripture and because when the apostles were talking to people and a jailer asked, how do we be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. They didn't pull out a little piece and say, here, eat this and you'll be saved. No, God was not asking people to truly eat his flesh and drink his blood. Although the exact literal interpretation would say that, the normative literal interpretation is Jesus really wants them to completely buy into him, to completely and wholeheartedly receive him, not just partially. And so there's passages of Scripture where God uses words that are figurative. When it says, it was like, or as, this as something else. He's using that to explain. So we believe that God spoke through the human writers so that the very words of Scripture are what God intended to say. We are reading the Word of God, not a fortune cookie. You ever noticed how lame fortune cookies are today? They used to be. Good. Anyway. 
So we don't seek a mystical meaning. We don't, oh, let's see. It says, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God. I know that means you have to wear a suit and tie when you go to church. Doesn't at all. I happen to wear one. We don't require it of anyone. We don't require it of me. Come tonight, I won't have one. But we look for the logical meaning. When it says study or be diligent to show yourself to God, approve, that it means God really wants you to learn his word. That's the normal way to understand it. We don't seek a mystical meaning. We seek to understand the most normal, most literal, most common reading, unless there's a scriptural reason we should not. So, that's why we believe in the literal days of creation. And that's why we believe the historical account of a worldwide catastrophic, cataclysmic flood in Noah's day. Because God's word uses very specific days. Terms. Very specific terms. For instance, in the days of creation. Have you heard people say, well, those days could be ages, you know, and the eon and the eon were the first day, you know. No, God uses very specific terms. In fact, when it, in, in the original language, when it's used that way, it can only describe a literal 24-hour days. When it says, in the evening and the morning were the first day, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And he goes through each day with that exact description. Creation was all done in six days. Now, kind of weird, isn't it? Why did God do six days? He was establishing a week and a day of rest in the week and a focus on worshiping God every day, but especially on that day of rest. And see, God could have created it all instantly. How much work was it for God to say, let there be light? Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven and trillions of stars suddenly existed. God could have said, the creation I have envisioned, let it be. And it all would have been. But he established six days. He didn't need millennia. He didn't need billions and trillions of years. So why do the stars seem to be billions of light years away? Because God created a fully mature universe, just like He created fully mature people. And in Noah's flood, you go up on the high mountains. In fact, I have a rock that Gary East gave me from the top of, how high was that peak? 7,500 feet. He's got this rock from 7,500 feet, and it's a fossilized seashell. And you can go up on high peaks, the ones that are not covered with snow all the time and have an ice pack on them, but the other ones, you go up on the top of those and you can find skeletons of fish. How did they get there? Well, somebody harvested them. He was flying them over and they fell out of the airplane. Now, 
I, I think it, it's a re- result of a worldwide flood. On the top of mountains, we have mud and, and animals pressed in mud on the top of mountains and therefore fossilized because the catastrophic flood. And not only that, but Jesus spoke of the flood and of Noah as literal events. So when we are looking at trying to read God's word from a normative, literal perspective, here's a few rules that we use, okay? Number one, we first choose to interpret the words literally. That's what we try to do. Now, some language is literal and some is figurative, and we try not to confuse the two. Why is that important? There are people who confuse the two. In fact, I have a picture of a book here from Robert Muntz, and he is a contributing author to one of the translations of the Bible that we don't use. I don't think it's accurate, and, and, and he's one of the contributing translators. And so I have his book on Revelation, and I don't keep it because it's an amazing, great tool. I keep it to use just for teaching times like this. All right, <clears throat> let's look at what he says. The enormous size of the city has caused some surprise. Since a stadium is about 607 feet, 1,200 stadia would be approximately 1,400 miles. I've heard everything from 1,380 miles up to 1,500 miles for the left. While it's possible to conceive of a city covering the entire territory of the United States west of Mississippi, it's difficult to think of the same city reaching 1,400 miles up into the ionosphere. The numbers are obviously symbolic. Okay, so let's take a look at that. Do you have a Bible with you? Somebody said, the Bible can shed a lot of light on your theology. Yeah, if you don't get that, you you will someday. All right, so let's just look now. Let's highlight that uh, that little thing. It's difficult to think of it, so therefore the numbers are symbolic. Let's look what God's word says in Revelation twenty one. <coughs> okay, we're we're reading literally unless the Bible gives a reason not to read it literally. Okay. Are you in Revelation 21? Okay, good. Jerry's there, so we can go on. All right. Thank. I appreciated you saying that, Jerry, because I wanted to wait till everybody was there. Look at verse 15. All right, now he's talking about an angel, and he who talked with me is an angel, had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. What part of that makes you think it needs to be interpreted figuratively? See, in fact, let's just... Just look a little more here. Uh, let's go up to verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. All right, so it's a city, right? 
Would John know what a city looked like? He'd know what a city looked like in his day, right? But, but imagine somebody in the 1500s being told about the skyscrapers on Manhattan Island. You know, in the 1500s, it was just a few animals and trees. And now there's skyscrapers beyond description almost. It blows your mind to see them. And so he carried me away and he saw this city, a great city. John recognized this is massive and glorious, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me has a gold reed to measure the city. So he says, there's a city, and it has foundations, and it has a wall, and it has gates. And now we have a reed to measure it. Should we interpret this literally? Absolutely. It's the only way to accurately interpret it. Just because it's difficult to imagine a city 1,380 to 1,500 miles high, I can't imagine that. But I couldn't imagine the Empire State Building until I got to stand up toward the top. They don't let you get up on the very top. I was quite disappointed. Uh, I couldn't imagine being on something that tall when I was a kid. Just because we've never seen it doesn't mean God has never seen it. God sees the end from the beginning. And God has this city either already prepared or being prepared. And it's going to come down and it is massive. And and the glory of God is going to be there. For us to get that high now, we have to fly in an airplane. There's nothing on planet earth that high. But there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And an awesome, holy city, new Jerusalem. So back to rule number one and number two. If there's no biblical reason not to interpret the... I'm sorry, there is no biblical reason not to interpret the measure of the city, literally. When he said, it must be figurative, he's demonstrating his reluctance to conform his thoughts to what God's word says. He wants to do his own thing. And I would not trust his interpretation. That's why we don't recommend using Bibles other than the two that we recommend, the King James and the New King James. Because there's some so-called translations that actually abuse God's Word. So, number three, we understand that not all passages of the Bible are 
interpreted the same way. Not all of them are. You see, we have at the beginning, what are the first five books called? The Pentateuch. What else are they called? The books of the law. Then after that, then you got your books of histories. After the histories, what do you get to? Poetry or wisdom literature. And so you have that. And then after that, you get to the prophets. The major prophets and the minor prophets. The major prophets aren't major because they outrank the minor ones or were taller. Their books were longer. So they're called the major prophets. And after we get to the end of the minor prophets, the gospels. And then the epistles. And then the apocalypse or the revelation. And in between the gospels and the epistles, we have the book of Acts, which is a transition book. So, we understand not all passages are read the same way. So, when we're reading something in prophecy, we understand there might be an element where this is figurative. When we're reading in history, we don't look for anything figurative. We look only for what's literal. And then even in the prophecies, we only interpret it figuratively when there's a biblical reason to do so. Otherwise, we take it literally. So there's, uh, that's why we prefer to use uh, rule number four, biblical translations that translate the ancient languages word for word. Not just, let's try and match meaning here. We, we want it to be as close to word for word as it can be. In fact, uh, I had a Greek teacher when I was at the University of Arizona who was in a lifestyle that was very contrary to God's word, had no interest in being a Christian, had no desire to be a Christian. But he said if he were a Christian, he would only read from the King James versions the King James, and the New King James because he didn't think the others were accurate enough, which really upset some of the other people in the class. So um, those are the two that we recommend. Is it evil if you read from another one? I sure hope not because I read from a bunch of different ones to see it differently, feel it differently, but I base my study primarily in these two. In fact, for me, it's easier to study in the King James just because that's what I was raised with. So I, I usually use that for my study and then transition and use both the King James and New King James in my reading. All right, so uh, we, we try and take the Word of God from a normative, literal perspective. All right, don't turn it up yet. What was the second part of that? Do you remember? Normative, literal grammatical. So she gets a gold star in advance for next Sunday. It's like, like an indulgence she's earned right now. All right, grammatical. What does that mean? How many of you are good with grammar? Yeah, I love my grammar. She is sweet. Oh, my grammar's in heaven now. I'm not very good with grammar. I thought I was till I started dating somebody who really was good at grammar. <laughs> I, I, but when we read the Bible, you know, it's written in sentences, right? It's 
like a book, right? So when you're trying to understand something that's written, what do you look for? You look for objects, you look for action, you look for nouns, you look for verbs, you look for adverbs, you look for... Uh, you, you try and read it, you try and understand. You see how the words connect with each other. Now, occasionally, going from the Old Testament's primarily in Hebrew, the New Testament primarily in Greek, uh, but going from those to translate into English, sometimes the, it's really hard to phrase something in English from that because in English, there's lots of things we don't do. It's easier to go from the Greek to Spanish or to French or to Portuguese than it is to go to English because English is a weird language. We've drawn from all kinds of other languages and we've plunked words in and, and there's no rules for spelling in English, right? I mean, it's always I before E except when it's not, right? Like when it's weird, weird is not. So there's lots of reasons why. And, and so uh, when we're looking at it from uh, Greek or Hebrew into English, there is some limitation of the language, but that's the language that we use. And so unless you're going to become fluent in speaking ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew, the language they speak in Hebrew in Israel today is not the same as the uh, text, and the Greek spoken in Greece today is not the same as the Bible text. So we just take our English translation and we try and read it like another book. And so when we're in 2 Timothy and it tells us to study or be diligent, then we think, okay, this is something God wants me to do. You don't even need to know it's an imperative command. You just know this is something God wants me to do. And so you do it. And you try and present yourself to God uh, to, to be aware of the fact that you have personal accountability to God. You get that just from reading. So it's written in sentences. We look for subjects, objects, nouns, verbs. The structure of the text helps us understand its appropriate interpretation. That's why when we went to Revelation 21 and we read the text of what the Bible said, we could then take the commentary written by Mr. Muntz and say, that's not accurate. The Bible is. We very clearly saw the words and descriptions did not make sense if you were trying to interpret it figuratively as he chose to do, just because he couldn't imagine a city 1,500 miles high. I can't either. It staggers the imagination. But I can't understand how God could speak creation into existence with no effort, no labor, no toil. I was here for the Grand Prix for a couple hours, and we set it back up. I went home and took a nap. And God is never weary nor tired. When God rested on the seventh day, it wasn't because God said, whew, I'm worn out. It's because God wanted to teach people that you don't work every day. We're supposed to have a day of rest. A day to 
recalibrate. Somebody said, our, our world runs on a 24-hour clock, but our bodies run on a 25-hour clock. So if we don't rest one day a week, we get out of sync. Maybe we're in phase with the moon, apparently. Okay. But we look at it grammatically. Even though you may not understand it perfectly, the Bible is not a mystical book. It's a knowable book. It's a book you can read and learn and understand. It's a well-written explanation of God's plan and purpose. Okay, now what's the next one? We read God's purpose. The third area is from a historical perspective. A historical perspective. Let me share a little one from Proverbs with you. You don't have to turn there. But in Proverbs chapter 14... Uh, there's a, a, a thing written here. Proverbs 14, verse 4 says, Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by strength of the ox. How many of you live with an ox? Okay, wives, don't raise your hand. Okay, I mean literal, literally an ox, not a figurative ox. Okay, literally. We don't. You don't have an ox in your house. If you do, it's, it's one made of metal or stone. It's not a real live breathing thing. And so we, we live in a different culture. But when you try and look at it historically, we try and look at what it was like then. See, they lived in an agrarian culture, and they lived in a culture where part of your house included rooms for the animals. Because if you didn't protect them, someone else would come along and eat them. So you had to protect them. And so you have a room, part of a room, for an ox. And if you don't put an ox in there, that room stays clean. But if you don't have the ox, you can't plow the field. If you don't have the ox, you can't haul things. There's much gain from having an ox. So there's a benefit and a trade-off. It's a little messier, but you get a lot more done. It's kind of like having kids, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> so we look at it from a historical perspective. Here's questions we ask. What did it mean when it was written? That, that's a way of phrasing. What's the authorial intent? What did the author mean? What did God mean when he inspired the author to write the words, what, what, what did it mean when it was written? So we're attempting to stand in the writer's shoes and recreate his experience. What was he thinking? Uh, to think as he thought, to feel as he felt, to decide as he was deciding. And, and so we're asking, what did this mean to him? And what was he conveying to the people? And we do that before we say, what does this mean to me? See, some people are involved in Bible studies where people will read a verse and they, well, what does it mean to me? And every person has their, what does it mean to me? What? No, there's a, what is, does it mean? And then how do I apply that to my life? There's only one accurate interpretation. And we learn that interpretation and then we apply it to our lives. So after we look at it historically, then we seek to apply it to our lives today. We intentionally remember this. Got this? The Bible was actually not 
written to you. You can't go to a page in the scripture where it says, Thus says the Lord God to the citizens of Casa Grande, Arizona. You can't find it. It was not written to you, but it was written for you. All scripture is written for our learning. So that we can learn and grow. Even though it's not written to us, we can learn something from every passage. So, let's bring up our starting verse. And we're going to read this together. Okay? You guys ready? Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth. This is what God wants us to do. And so we develop a hermeneutic to help us do that. There's a method of understanding God's word and learning it so we can please God. That's the cool thing. God doesn't say you have to get your PhD in theology. He said you have to study You have to grow. You have to work at it. You have to be diligent. But every one of us, at every age, can learn God's Word and let it impact our lives. And the purpose, again, is not just so you can understand His Word. It's so you can draw closer to Him. He loved you enough to communicate with you in a way that you can learn and draw closer to Him. As Peter said, what did he say? Um, Grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We learn His Word so we get closer to Him.